0: Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We are a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. And so today we're talking about shepherding. And there's maybe a lot of confusion around what that is, but to put it plain and simply, shepherding is loving the person in front of you. Okay, how do you do that well? And I remember in my early days when I first got saved and know the Lord, when us guys would get together and we would shepherd each other, it was more about behavior control, behavior modification. How many times did you cuss this week? Oh, that seven times. And that one, that one was a bad word. So we literally would punch each other in the arm for every time we said a bad word. <laughs> and did that, did that change our behavior? No, it just meant that we weren't going to tell. I didn't say any bad words this week. <laughs> And at a lot of times, that is actually what, what I would say a lot of shepherding may look like in some church communities. So exactly. I want to propose to you that shepherding looks less like behavior modification. I mean, sometimes you got to tell people like, hey, that's probably not a good idea. You should stop doing that. But I would want to propose to you that shepherding looks like caring for somebody's story. I, d- I just feel it so deep within my soul that everybody has a story and everybody's story matters and that we are a part of the story of god and i also feel like when you are diving into somebody's story there's not a lot of room for judgment i mean you can but when you're truly diving into someone's story all you have is empathy for that person and this is how and why they got to where they're at today And you just have this level of empathy and love and care and kindness that you can now give to somebody else in their life versus, well, I just see them of what they're doing for their behavior. And now I'm going to judge them for their behavior. And I have learned to engage story through restoration project. So what is restoration project? It's largely a men's ministry. And the whole goal is to one, how do you turn buddies into brothers? You know, men are really great at showing up, talking about the weather, talking about sports talking about the job, maybe talking about the housing market. And we're really good at talking about those, you know, that's really a hot topic, at least on my list right now. But usually those conversations don't go any deeper than those type of dynamics. And that's really unfortunate because there's a deeper story to engage with men. And with Restoration Project, we create experiences to help men engage their own story and then they teach us how to brother. And what I mean by brothering, I mean by how do we engage each other's stories in a healthy way. And so we have all these different experiences of fathers going on these backcountry trips with their sons. And they have all these experiences to turn the heart of the father to the sons and the sons to the father. And we teach men how to engage their sons and give them an opportunity to do that. We do the same thing for fathers and daughters. And at the end, there's this moment, not a dry eye in the crowd, but we break them into small groups where the father always reads a blessing over their child. And, uh, I mean, it's impacted me so much that even just thinking about it, it brings me to tears. Because how often has your father sat you down and looked you square in the eye and told you how much he loves and adores you? Not very often, unfortunately. And it's not because of lack of will. Most of our fathers, I do believe that. But no one has taught them. No one has taught us, right? And so we're in the business of teaching men how to engage and love well. And part of that was I went on a trip, I took this photo with a bunch of men where we take them in the wilderness. We get to experience God and the beauty of who he is. And then we get to have an opportunity of diving into each other's story. And in talking with story, I wanna invite you into a personal story where being a part of Restoration Project for last five or six years, either I was a participant (laughs) uh, and being brothered, and then came to a place now where I'm brothering and volunteering on staff with them. But I want to start this off with inviting you into my own story with my father. And I didn't know the things that I was learning now was going to basically help save my father's life. You know, this picture right here that you see is my dad and I standing together and we're in the Boy Scouts. So my dad was the Scoutmaster. I tugged on his shoulder saying, Dad, let's do this together. And so from Cub Scouts all the way to Boy Scouts, he was our Scoutmaster And leading boys and teaching them how to camp, how to survive, how to build a fire, how to stay warm when it's raining. And then we did this, I think it was like a hundred mile trip through, it's called the Bow Run. You go through these different lakes and you're out there for two weeks. We're probably halfway through this trip and so you don't see a smile on my face because I'm pretty tired (laughs) rowing. So the boys are up front. And really the fathers in the back are actually doing the ones rowing. So my dad, bless him, was probably doing most of the rowing on that trip. But one of the things I remember most, and what I want to invite you in to this story is when we would have these meetings where we would learn how to tie knots or we learn how to accomplish these merit badges, my dad would be a bus driver to some of the boys home. Sometimes we would be on the road an hour, hour and a half after the meeting as my dad is taking kids home to their different houses. And we would always want him to tell us stories about Vietnam. And so my father would reluctantly oblige to us and give us a PG-13 story about some of the stories that happened to him in Vietnam. And one of those stories I learned is him getting wounded. Now, as a young boy, I thought it was the coolest thing in the war, like war and warrior and shooting. And, and it just seemed cool, you know, like I wanted to be an army man. I wanted to be in the military. And so I didn't realize that my dad was inviting me in or that he was giving me the tip of the iceberg of a much, much deeper tragic story. And at that age, my dad was smart enough. He wasn't gonna like totally unpack everything that he went through. And he hardly ever talked about it unless he was with several other veterans or someone that he trusted would, that would, he'd be able to trust with his story. So we just got the the tip of the iceberg. And what you see here is a tree stump where they've chopped the tree and you're seeing the rings of a tree and many of you may already know this but the rings of a tree each ring represents a year and if there's a whole study around this when you can look at the the stump of a tree and you can tell how healthy the tree is you can tell what year was a good year where it grew a lot maybe it got a lot of water a lot of sun and what years may there have been a drought you can tell a lot about the health of a tree is it are there worms growing in it? Is, is there rot happening in it? And what I love about this picture is that our story is like a ring rings in a tree. Every year we go, get older, every year we grow, every moment is a ring in our life. It's a moment in time that is marking us, and some of those moments are really great, and some of those moments are not really great. And really, when we're talking about story, It's not talking about like one story or I don't have a story or nothing really bad's happened to me and, or my life was pretty bland. I don't buy that. I buy that you have layers and layers and layers and layers of life. If you know, I'm 39 years old, I have 39 years of story built up and then how many stories in just one year. And then you go down to a month and you go down to days, all of that accumulates to making who you are today. So let's set the context of what I mean by story. And I'm going to kind of blaze through these because I want to get to how I was able to use this, not only with other men, but more importantly with my dad. I believe that there's two stories in everybody's life. There's the story of glory and the story of the shadow. So the story of glory is the calling of God on your life. It's what God says who you are. It's what he says your identity is. It's the gifts and the purposes that he's put over your life. You know, you can read Psalm 139, I've knit, I formed you, I know who you are intimately. You can go to Romans 8 where it talks about I foreknew you. I am calling you into something greater. So this is the story of glory in your life. And we all have a unique, special calling and purpose. Every one of us reflect God in a beautiful, unique way that no one else can. And that is an amazing thing to think about, that we all carry something special from God. And that is what I call the story of glory. It's the first story of our life. However, we have the second story called the shadow. And the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy from us and to put harm in our way. And there's all sorts of ways that this manifests into our life. The enemy does not like that you carry goodness within you. And the enemy is afraid of what you carry and will do whatever it can to try to destroy and kill and to take away from the goodness that you carry. And that is what we call the second story. I'm going to unpack a little bit about how that story is created. There is, you know, I believe there is evil at play and sometimes that's obvious and sometimes it's not as obvious. And then we also live in a fallen world. So, you know, stuff happens So to explore a little bit more deeply the shadow, I'm going to read a little bit here. Like a chain of events, it begins from the trauma that we experience as events in our lives. These events produce emotions within us because we feel things. And these traumatic experiences shape how we interpret these events. So I know there's a lot of counselors and therapists in here. uh, So hold me accountable if I'm not saying anything right. But I am learning this from a therapist. But we have these like, chain of events that happen in our lives. And these basically, long story short, these chain of events, you have an event that marks you. It's like that ring in that tree. And then we feel emotions. Some feel more, some feel less. But when that event happens, it does create emotions in us. And those events, uh, those emotions, now create interpretations. Those interpretations now create conclusions. And most likely, those conclusions will always line up with the second story of the shadow they'll always line up of what have you come to believe about yourself because of this event that has happened. And these chains, the second story holds us captive. And if you're held captive, then you're not set free. So, all right, well, what is trauma? Uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, Dr. Dan Allender says that anything harmful experience outside of the garden of Eden, trauma can technically be anything that you experience outside of the garden of Eden. Okay, well, that makes sense. If we were designed and created to walk with God, to walk in communion with love, to walk in this peace and harmony, that was our original design and existence. So outside of the Garden of Eden, when we begin to experience other things, then you could start saying that is evil at work and that can be technically labeled as trauma. But not all traumas are equally, right? So you can have little T's and big T's. So you can have like little moments where Dave says something mean to me and I'm like, ah, that hurt my heart. That's a little, probably a little T. But if that happens, or if you have these little T's over time, then it, then they can add up to become bigger things and become corrosive and toxic in our life. We can begin to accept and start to live out content in our lives because of these little T's. And then we also can have singular, powerful, impactful moments. You know, I was in the military myself, and I also was a paramedic. I can still recall calls that I bid on that I know were singular traumatic events that still affect me to this day. So those are singular moments, but that can add up to be traumatic. And this is all part of the second story. The other quote that I really like, especially if we're talking about children, uh, is that children are great observers, but terrible interpreters. That's why sometimes when we have things happen to us as kids, it really does affect us later on because they don't have the emotional capacity or the understanding or the maturity to interpret the event correctly. And that will inform a conclusion that will inform about yourself. The other thing that I find is interesting is that when you have traumatic events like these rings in a tree, if you have a strong enough event, it will actually trap your psyche in that moment in time. So it's one of the reasons why my experience is you'll see Men that look like grown men, and then they'll have a moment where I'm like, You are acting like an eight year old right now. Or you'll ask them because they're struggling, Well, what are you know, even just in my own personal, you know, there was a time where I went to counseling because I needed some extra help, and he would stop me and go, How old do you feel right now? And I'd say, I feel like a little boy, and that's because I was going back to that moment of time where that traumatic event happened to me, and I needed to process that to help mature myself to help father myself to help brother myself to help bring in a new perspective of what that event was happening and that's what we call restoring our story. So, this is what leads to awareness, curiosity, and kindness. What I love about this and what restoration project has taught me is it's given me language on how to engage somebody's story. So you're like, okay, I want to love someone well, I want to engage in their story. Well, like how? <laughs> right? And so this is a way where we've broken it down and we actually do when we take men into the back countries We have them bring a storied object, which means it's an object that has a story behind it We all had them print out a picture Of them as little boys And then we would have them tell the story behind the picture and we would break this up into segments So I had three other guys and so we would begin to dive into awareness now I'm going to break this down for you in different segments because that's how we actually train. If if anyone's done athletics and sports, you don't teach someone how to do like, Mo, you're going to love this. I'm a terrible basketball player because I was a wrestler in high school, but I still remember the basic mechanics of how to shoot a basketball. I will still miss every time if you're going to put a bet on me, but I still remember the mechanics of how you hold the ball and then how you shoot it. Because you don't just go, okay, to somebody and go, here, just shoot a ball. You first teach them, teach them the basic mechanics and the different motions and how to hold the ball, then how to release, and even how to move to get the ball into the rim. Still can't do it to this day, but I have really good form. Uh, so I think there's probably more practice in that. <laughs> so that's the same way with awareness, curiosity, kindness. We realize that most people haven't been taught how to engage people's story and don't have the language of how to do it. So we actually break it down into segments. Now when you exercise this muscle and you get really good at it, just like shooting a basketball, you don't even think about it. It all kind of blends together. But when I'm engaging people and, and I engage awareness, I know, okay, I'm engaging awareness right now. And then, okay, we're going to go to kindness. But in, in real life, that all kind of just blends together. So we break it down into segments. We basically say, okay, everyone tell their story. So that's awareness. Now, the rules for awareness is no one can interrupt. It's really easy, to be honest with you. It's really easy. They tell their story, you listen. Now, for the person that's being aware, you're looking at body posture. How are they holding themselves? Did they change posture during different parts of their story? What are they telling you? What are they not telling you? When did they get emotional? When did they not get emotional? There are some times where they're telling like a really hard thing and they are stone cold, nothing. And I go, oh, maybe they need to be connected there, right? So I'm just being aware of their story. Now, the thing about awareness is I want, if you're really truly listening, I want it to provoke curiosity, which is our next one. So then we have a moment where we go around, and this is the, I I would say probably the fun part, where you get to go hunting in their story. You get to explore the landscape of who they are that they presented to you. And curiosity allows you to help them explore their landscape, too. So curiosity really is just, in its simplest form, is asking questions, right? Now, there's some rules to this, too. So I'm trying not to ask, so what color was your house? What was the weather like? Who was winning in that baseball game I'm trying not to ask too many contextual questions. Sometimes I need to, to kind of understand the story better. But really like some of the questions I'm asking is, well, what did you mean by that? What was it like for you in that moment? Where were you when this was happening? Uh, How did that feel when this thing happened? One of my favorite is, what did you come to believe about yourself in that moment? That's genuine curiosity couple things that we don't want to do here is put a Band-Aid on it by by advice giving, because I see that a lot. So no advice giving. They probably already know what they need to do to not do the thing. They need help to explore the thing. And then you got to hold your assumptions and judgments at the door. You're really just truly taking them in and their story in for who they are and asking genuine, curious questions. And then at the end of the trip, we do this thing called kindness. And we do it in front of everybody, but we break it down into small groups. But kindness is now... Because of curiosity and because of awareness, I am looking for the first story in that person's life. I'm looking for how the enemy has attacked them or how evil has been at work in their life to come against the first story. At this moment of kindness, I begin to reflect the first story that I saw with them. Which is really impactful because now I have taken the time to hear who they are. So when then I begin to call forth the goodness that I saw in them to say, actually, that desire was good, and the enemy came in to twist it, or this moment came in to twist this good desire that has been unmet, I'm calling forth the first story in that person. And it becomes really impactful and really meaningful because you've spent time with them. You have spent time exploring and learning who they are in their landscape. And it's basically what you'd say is layman therapy. It's layman counseling. And it's story-based narrative therapy. And, and I didn't realize over these last five or six years how critical this moment in time would be when I would have to muster up all of my own skill set to love and brother my dad in this process. I got a phone call from my mom and she was more than worried about my father. And basically my dad was having an emotional breakdown not at that moment, but has been having an emotional breakdown. And it was right around my birthday. And why that is significant is because it was right around the time that my dad was wounded in Vietnam. And it was 50 years ago that that had happened. But he had done a really good job of caging up his words, caging up the person inside that was rageful, that was angry, that was hateful. And he didn't want to let that person out because that person was a mean person and would do mean things. And so he did a good job of managing behavior, managing and isolating emotions. But it comes to a time, and this happens with everybody, you can try to do that and you may be successful to do it for a long time, but it's going to come up one way or another and it's usually going to come up in unwanted behavior. And sometimes that behavior is going to be weird and off ball. And you're not going to know why that's happening. And when you finally figure out it's because of this event, you're going to go, well, that was, that's crazy that this unwanted behavior came from this moment, but it's going to come up one way or another. And it started to percolate and bubble up for my father. We tried to get help and therapy and to get resources to him, but it just was not happening. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'm going to do this. And so I spent for the next six to eight weeks calling my dad, and we would have two-hour conversations of me just... um, Sorry. Processing his pain. And he trusted me, one, because I'm his son, and two, I was a veteran. I, I knew some of the dynamics that he was dealing with. I began to go, okay... I'm going into awareness. I began to dive into his story and go, what's going on? And my dad actually was like, just talking. He was ready to roll. Talk, talk, talk. I would say probably two, three weeks went by, and I started noticing something because of my awareness. He was telling the same story over and over and over again. He was on this, what I call the trauma train loop, or my dad would say, it's a brain itch. It's a neural pathway brain itch, right? And then I realized, okay, I actually need to derail the train with a question. So then I began to ask him questions to probe a little deeper into his story. I'm going to take a moment now to read you from his own words. Uh, He actually wrote a book, and this is my father right here, when he was a young buck, early 20s. I'm going to read you the story of the moment in time where he fragmented, where that part fragmented from him, and then he said, I'm going to lock it away into a cage. Um, I'm going to read you that. Because it's actually, in his own words, it's actually really interesting to see that moment in time happen and him having the awareness. And then I'm going to uh, unpack how we addressed it and how we unpacked it to actually bring that fragmented part of himself to reintegrate that back to him into wholeness. So here's my dad on the photo. On the left side was a photo taken just before he was wounded. It's a little long, so bear with me. But... It's a good story. The evening I was wounded, the military operation involved a night air insertion near what was supposed to be a hostile village called Vensuk. Army intelligence said that the enemy was spending the nights in this village. They didn't tell us how they knew this, so the idea was to insert troops in the dark to surround the village and to surprise the enemy. The only problem was the village was in a place called the Iron Triangle, and this fact wasn't lost on any of us who had been in country for a while. The Iron Triangle was 60 square mile area lying between the Saigon River and Route 13 about 25 miles north of Saigon. 30,000 soldiers, American and South Vietnamese, spent 19 days battling the Viet Cong in this area in January of 1967, and over 700 enemy soldiers were killed. Two years later, we were still trying to keep enemy forces from regrouping and staging in this area, and we were always trying to chase them out to little or no avail. I was seated on the lead chopper, one of ten helicopters flying in a single file formation of five helicopters each. We were flying in a UH UH-1H Iroquois, commonly known as the Huey. Each helicopter was carrying eight to ten soldiers and was getting ready to airmail a recon unit from the 1st Infantry Division into the Iron Triangle with special delivery instructions. If you were an enemy soldier, it simply would be the kind of news that you wouldn't want to receive. Though we had done this dog and pony show many times before, this was the first time we had done our air insertion at night. When we started orbiting the landing zone, LZ, I could see my patrol mates and the chopper getting ready for the landing. Soldiers were checking to make sure their weapons were locked and loaded. I was singing a Beatles song at the top of my voice, though no one could hear me through the sound of the chopper's prop wash as the blade cut through the air. I was thinking how good this all felt, flying in the sky and all. I swore I could hear the sound of the chopper blades singing harmony with my song. I could see that our chopper was attempting to land in a clearing about a mile from the village. We were about 500 yards from the edge of the jungle, flying about 300 feet off the ground. When the seats of white and green tracers announced that the enemy automatic weapon positions on the ground had opened fire, it seemed that It seemed so strange that there were being no sound of gunfire which could be heard. The tracers were coming up at us like fast-flying fireflies, and one line of these tracers was walking right in on our chopper. I was sitting by the door and tried to sit back further in the helicopter's hole for, for cover, like a turtle pulling his head into a shell once it's sensing danger. I began to hear the metallic sound of bullets hitting our Huey. I could feel the chopper lurch, and slide slipped to the right and out of the corner of my eye I saw the pilot in the left seat slump over. My left hand snapped back like it had been hit with a baseball bat, and part of my plastic rifle stock exploded, the pieces of plastic embedded in my face. The chopper's door gunner on my left screamed out in pain and grabbed his side. Someone else fell back behind me. As I fell back I looked over my shoulder and I could see Sergeant Kelly lying on his side facing the door. He was right behind me, and I noticed a small, bloody hole above his left eyebrow. My survival switch had been turned on, and I was very aware of everything happening around me. It was like I was in some kind of movie being played out in slow motion. The chopper continued banking hard to the right, and the light from the illumination flare now filled the interior of our chopper cabin. I closed my eyes, and I was finding it hard to breathe. I was thinking of my family back home, and that maybe dying wouldn't be all bad. Strangely, I wasn't afraid to die. And a part of me had already accepted this fact several weeks before. It was then that I felt the chopper right itself as, as the other pilot gained control and altitude. The medic hollered in my ear, Are you all right? I could feel that he was holding me by my web gear with his right hand. I think so. I shouted back, Damn, how lucky could I be? The chopper swung around, and as I sat up, I could see bullet tracers flying all over the place. The helicopters reorganized in the air, and we were soon joined by another set of 10 Hueys, single file and in staggered formation. The first nine helicopters came in with machine guns blazing, just like the old West, straight into hell itself, it seemed. The machine gunners were firing at anything that moved. Suppression by fire, it was called, and we were pouring it on. I was slipping in one one rifle clip after another as fast as I could, trying to empty as many 19 round clips from my M16 directly into the jungle, edge where the automatic weapons fire initiated from. I could feel the barrel's heat through the hole in the plastic stock, which surrounded the barrel of my rifle. I was on automatic fire shooting and reloading with one hand, which was a bit difficult, but nothing mattered now. It was a do or die moment, and I was hoping the enemy soldiers would be the ones doing the dying. As we got closer to the ground, LT Rosenberg turned and yelled to me, Dino, stay on the ship. We'll only have to evacuate you out later if you get off. Don't worry. We'll be all right. I sat stunned for a moment. It never occurred to me that I wouldn't be going with him. I tried to protest. "'But sir, you need me,' I replied. "'I can adjust the artillery. You're going to need me to do that.' But I could tell by the expression on his face uh, his mind was already made and the army wasn't a democracy. "'Stay in the ship, sergeant. That's an order.' He gave my shoulder a reassuring pat but looked firmly in my eyes without smiling, showing me that he wasn't kidding." The chopper landed and my platoon ran off in different directions. The pilot gave a quick look back to make sure the troops were clear and immediately did his takeoff run. Within 10 seconds, my platoon had been offloaded and he put the hot LZ behind us. Traces were still flying everywhere, including straight up in the air. We flew for what seemed like just a few minutes to the pickup zone, the PZ, where the other troops were located and landing. The chopper landed off to the side and the pilot got out, checking where the bolt holes had hit the chopper, then looking and treating the wounded still on the chopper's deck. As I got off the chopper, I looked up at the underbelly of an incoming Huey. It was then that its light underneath turned on into day as it prepared to land and the sight of this light, something snapped inside of me. And part of me just simply stepped back mentally and became an observer. I became two people. One just stood there and watched, the other, well, he suddenly realized someone had just about killed him and wanted to return the favor. Bad. In full rage and, and more an in instinct than anything else, I tried to get on the chopper going back to LZ, but suddenly someone was trying to stop me. Where the hell do you think you're going? It was more of an exclamation than a question. I turned and looked at Sergeant Piper, a friend of mine from another platoon, Charlie Company. You can't go back in, you're wounded. Piper was looking at the makeshift bandage around my hand. He grabbed, my, grabbed me by the arm as I attempted to climb inside the helicopter. Piper yanked me off the helicopter platform, and we both fell to the ground with him on top. He grabbed for my rifle, and there we were, in something which must have seemed surreal to others looking on us two soldiers rolling around on the ground among landing choppers and loading trucks. "You can't go, man, it's a trap," I cried. "They're waiting for us. You'll be sitting ducks. I was a bit hysterical now, and the images of my past eight months and Nam started to play in my mind like a quick moving slideshow. You go in and get fixed up. Come back if you can, he shouted in my ear. I tried to argue, but no words came out of my mouth. I could see that what I had to say wasn't going to make a difference anyway. Piper smiled briefly and gave me a quick one-arm hug and turned back to the PZ to get on a chopper. As Piper's chopper began to lift off, he gave me a small wave and a salute. He smiled and then was gone. All I could do was watch them fly away. The patrol of seven to eight guys was like my family. I knew more about many of these men than about my own kin back home. I was in charge of these men. My job was to watch over them, and I tried my best to live up to their standard. I knew their first names of their lovers, wives, and children. I knew, what that, I knew what they liked to eat, drink, and wear. I knew the names of their parents, where they were born, their favorite movies, books, and food. I knew some of their hopes and dreams. Hell, I even shared their mail with me, and I did the same for them. They were like brothers to me, and I had friends back in the, in the world but I never felt a bond towards them, as I felt towards the members of my patrol. It was the most helpless feeling in the world, like something in me was dying, and I would never be the same. And now hearing the story as an adult and hearing the full aspect of it, right? It was an eye-opening experience to hear the full intensity of what he experienced, the trauma, the loss, I'm aware of the innocence. He's singing a Beatles song in the way of going into a firefight. I mean, there's a naivety and an innocence there. And in a moment, completely wrecked and destroyed and stolen away from him. And in his own words, he is talking about this fragmentation that's taking place. And this is something that happens to all of us in our stories as well. So I began, through asking curious questions, I began asking him about this moment. He began talking about this moment. And he began talking about this person that he had locked away and he's afraid to let out. And I had proposed to my father. I said, I don't think, one, he thought that this person was dead and locked away and buried. And I said, dad, this person's not dead and locked away and buried. Obviously, because it's coming up 50 years later. And he goes, oh, yeah, this thing inside of me is not dead. So that was a revelation. And then I said, I think that this person who you've locked away is good. I'm curious what he has to say. And that's something he's never thought about before. So my dad began to process, I think he's mad. I think he's angry. And I said, yeah, I think he is angry. I think he is mad. Do you think we could give voice to that? And so he began to process and give voice to his pain and to talk through it. And then I said, Dad, you know, I don't like calling this person this person calling this person, this unknown someone that's dealing with pain. I think we should give him a name. What do you think we should call this person? Cause I know it's my dad <laughs> and we're still isolating him as being bad. So let's give him a name. And this does not lose me. My dad says they used to call me Pearl. And I don't know where they got that from a bunch of rough, tough guys in Vietnam. And he gets a nickname Pearl. And he goes, I think we should call this man Pearl. And it was not lost on me, the goodness of God, to in that moment, he's our alpha, he's our omega, and God knowing that the story and the journey that my dad would have to go on, and God, I believe with all my heart, had it on those heart of men to name him Pearl because we all know that pearls are born from a grain of sand and it irritates it and then it grows into this precious stone and I was like, yes, that this traumatic, broken, angry person is actually something that's beautiful and good and has a voice and has a right to be upset about something and yeah, maybe it's coming out in ways that you don't like and we can address that, but we can't address it until we give voice, until we give a name, until we start to love this broken part of you that's been fragmented. And from that moment on, my dad has been able to accept and integrate back into him this person that had been locked away and fragmented and causing a ruckus in his life. And that has been a life changing moment to integrate that back into him. And I share this story because from what i have learned has this has been the most dramatic example in my own life of me being able to use awareness curiosity and kindness not coming in with judgment not coming in with like you just need to fix this or you need to go and do this but coming in and shepherding their story loving their story helping them walk into their story and explore who they are who god is where they may have seen and believed lies of how they see themselves how they engage people and and how they engage God, and this is a very dramatic example, and I'm using that to make a point, but my dad would say, even from himself, that you don't need to go to war to experience trauma. Like, we all have this. We all have a story. We all have traumatic experiences. We all have things that we go through, and that's what I want to invite you into this season, when we go into house church is truly engaging each other with awareness, curiosity, and kindness. Engaging each other where we're taking the time maybe to listen to each other's stories and then asking questions. Help them explore. We're exploring. And then reflecting the goodness back that we see in them from these stories that we see. I think that this could be a really beautiful moment going into House Church where we all get to engage in each other's stories. We all get to engage with God in our stories in this house church context. And I know that it's changed my life and helped me mature in Christ to see better who I am. It's helped me grow in self-awareness of when maybe I'm healthy and when maybe I'm not. And it's blessed my marriage, being able to engage in healthy relationship, engaging my wife with awareness, curiosity, and kindness. My wife dishes it right back on me, awareness, curiosity, and kindness. And we lovingly help each other grow in maturity and grow in Christ. Jesus, we come to you as we are, and all of the goodness and the calling that you've put on our lives, all the gifts we carry, and, and we also come to you with our our baggage, our second story, Lord, and we just submit that to your care. We submit that to your shepherding, and Lord, I pray that you would continue to lead and guide and give us the wisdom on how to engage each other's story and and, and give us the courage on how to love each other well. Father, I pray that you would impart this on us, burden our hearts to love and care for each other's story. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.